We covered most recently reasons why to study theology. So here were the last five that we talked about. I have eight reasons, but I actually came up with nine. So we finished there last week, and the last one was sound theology is rare. And I proved that by showing you how bad American evangelical theology is. Not because truth is not out there somewhere. It's just because people aren't learning it for whatever reason. And so we need to be better theologians. So before we pick up here, let me open in prayer. Lord, thank you this morning that we can come and study about your word, that we can look at what it is that you have to teach us, the theology, the the topics, and what the Bible says about these topics. Lord, help us this morning to be good theologians, those who love your word enough to study it and discern the truth. We pray that you would help us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning we're just going to touch on this topic if you did the reading, which I have recommended that you do. People have asked me if I'm going straight through the book. I'm not. I've done that before, but that's really boring because you've already read it, and then I'm just reading it back to you and adding to it. But I am generally sticking with those topics, especially in the coming weeks. So that sets my schedule for what I'm going to talk about, whatever's on your reading schedule. But with the introductory matters, I'm not going to touch on everything because it is a hodgepodge of information. And I want to touch on just a few more today, though. And one of those is the main themes of Scripture. Now, there's a lot of debate about the motifs or main themes. I just use English motifs. Is that, is that French? I know genre is French. But motifs, the, the big themes of Scripture. What are they? And there's debate. Is, that, is it judgment? Is it salvation through judgment? Is it Christ? Is it salvation? Well, it is all about Christ, but what about Christ? And how do we tie that into the creation story? And so I would agree, and the book makes a, a big point of this, that king and kingdom, kingdom being the main theme of Scripture. Adam and Eve were told to come. Adam is supposed to represent God as a ruler, a manager over the whole earth. He fails at that. Still, mankind is called to reign and manage and rule over his home, his work that God has given him, and some are even kings over nations. But there's no perfect ruler until the king comes. And when the king comes, he says, here I am, the kingdom is among you, the king is here, in other words. Then he goes away, and he says, the king is coming. So if you want to learn more about that, that's really a biblical theology theme. Biblical theology, where you take a theme early on in the Bible, and you trace and see how it develops. Here's some books I'd recommend. He Will Reign Forever, Michael Vlock. He was one of my seminary professors. So we have these in the bookstore, but this one just starts in Genesis 1 and works all the way through Revelation. And so it is premillennial, but it's not just a book on premillennialism. It really just covers the kingdom doctrine early on all the way through Revelation. Also, another one, Frank and I both had Dr. Greg Harris as well. And he has a commentary on Isaiah and on Zechariah. It's two parts. I can't remember what the part one is. I think it's Zechariah. And it's the king and the glory. So there he just takes passages from Zechariah and shows how this kingdom theme develops in that one book. And these are from his notes from our seminary class. I didn't take this one. Did you take this one? I think it was an advanced class. But you can get it in a book form now. And then here's MacArthur's book from a few years ago on parables. The mysteries of God's kingdom revealed through the stories Jesus told. And that's supposed to be one of those sheep that grows a ton of wool on the front. Isn't that a nice cover? I mean, who doesn't want to buy that book to find out what it's about? The parables, they're not just stories to help the truth come across. That's often how we've been taught them and think about them. They were stories that hid the truth from those who had been rejected, those who had rejected Christ. And in that same story was the truth of the kingdom. And many lessons were taught in parables. And this isn't anything really that should be controversial. Jesus was asked, why do you teach in parables? And he said, Because it's not for them to know. It's not for them to hear. It's for my people. It's for my sheep. It's for my disciples. And so you need to understand the parables, but a lot of people mess with parables, twist parables. And and this book helps. I'm not saying I, I would necessarily agree with every single word in here. I'm sure if you listen to my Luke series, there's probably one tiny place somewhere that I might choose a different interpretation on some word or sentence. But it's a good book overall. I recommend it. All right, let's look at one more theme. And this is, I think everybody would agree, this is there as as well as kingdom. It's just a matter of what's primary. Often scripture has been categorized in the four stages. And the four stages, creation, fall, 
redemption and restoration. And that's certainly there. Some would add a fifth or a sixth if you want to put something, you know, in between there. Sanctification, some would say. God's, God building a people, maybe between fall and, and the coming of Christ. But these are generally the four categories that we see the storyline of Scripture play out. A lot of kids' books follow these four if they're talking about what's the story of the whole Bible. I like the King Kingdom better because it focuses on the King, Jesus. This does too, but you have to explain a little more to get there. Of course, he's the, the, the creator himself. He's the one who rescues us from the fall. He's the one who redeems us from our sins and restores all things, including his people with a resurrected body. All right, let's jump in a little bit more specifically this morning and ask the question that's in the reading for today. How does systematic theology relate to your worldview? So we have to talk about worldview. Worldview is a big word when it comes to apologetics. It's what every really college student should get before they go to college from their church. A good worldview. So when that's challenged in college, you're not so quick to reject it or your kids aren't so quick to reject it. Ronald Nash defines it as a conceptual scheme by which we consciously or unconsciously place or fit everything we believe and by which we interpret and judge reality. So it's kind of our, it's just like it says, our view of the world. It's the lens by which we view the world. How do we view this world? And systematic theology is going to help us with that because it gives us God's view of the world on many things. We don't know everything that God knows, obviously. God doesn't tell us everything about the world in the Bible. But he tells us enough to have a world view, a Christian world view, because everybody has a world view. The Muslim has a world view. The atheist has a world view. The, the Buddhist has a worldview. The cultural Christian has a worldview that's kind of Christian, but kind of not. Biblical doctrine defines it like this. A worldview compromises one's collection of presuppositions. These are your, your basic beliefs. You can't get any lower than your presuppositions. They're the, the foundational beliefs that you have, your convictions, and your values, from which a person tries to understand and make sense out of the world. So how do we understand this world? Well, systematic theology is going to help us with that. God gives us the answers. We don't have to be like the philosophers of old or the philosophers of new trying to come up with these on our own. All right, let's just sit around and think. And maybe someday we'll think of what is real. Well, God tells us what is real. God tells us what is true. And so, you know, if you're like me and you just want to not sit around and do the hard work, but just rely upon God because he's already told us. Then we start from that foundation. That's our presupposition, what God says. Not man's rational thinking or evolutionary theory and so on. I already quoted this guy, but there's this picture in case you guys wanted to see Ronald Nash. Let's talk about some worldview questions. Worldview questions everyone must ask. Everyone is thinking this, and tell me if these don't relate to systematic theology. How do you view the world? Through what lens? What is real? What is true? Now, see, as Christians, we just take those questions for granted. Of course we know what is real. Of course we know what is true. But an unbeliever doesn't take those for granted. They say there's different realities. There's different truths. Maybe this is a computer simulation. Maybe it's all just a movie that God is, you know, making in his mind. Maybe things are are true for you, but they're not true for me. The Muslim says his truth is true, and you say your truth is true. So who's really true? What is the nature of reality? Is it ordered? Does this universe have a purpose? Or was it just chaotic, thrown out there, exploded? It has no purpose. It's just chaotic. Everything is going to blow up someday. Is it created or evolved? And that, again, touches on order. Because if it's created, then it must be orderly. If we had a creator, create it. But if it's evolved, well, that's just nature doing its own thing. And we don't know. You know, nature is going to get us in the end. That's going to wipe out humanity, we're told. One of these days, nature is going to strike back. That's really just going back to the Greek conception of the the Gaia, the goddess of creation, the world, who's going to pay us back. And what is the nature of reality? Every every young person, college student, adult, and an older person has to deal with these questions at some point from unbelievers or maybe just their own doubts and their own questions they have in their mind. These aren't necessarily bad questions even for the Christian, but often we just... These are our presuppositions. They come from the Bible, so we don't think too much about this. But it will help us when we're dealing with evangelistic cases or 
apologetic cases. Can we know anything? Can we know God? That's a big question we'll talk about when we get to theology proper. Okay, assuming there is a real God, can we even know him? The unbeliever asks. The agnostic says, well, God exists, but we can't know him. He's above us. He's too high for us to know anything about. The Christian says God has revealed himself to us. He is higher than us. He is majestic. We would not be able to understand him if he hadn't revealed himself clearly in a language to us that we can now read in the Bible. What is a human? That's a big question these days, right? What is a man? What is a woman? What is a child? What is his purpose? What is a human's purpose in life? Is your purpose just whatever you want to believe? Is it, my purpose is to be wealthy. My purpose is to read as many books as I can read in this life, right? Some of the guys are thinking that's their purpose sometimes here at the church. What is my purpose in life, right? To, to be the most beneficial to others, to serve others. I mean, some of those aren't wrong if they're placed rightly, but our ultimate purpose is to glorify God. The Bible makes that clear. Now, everyone else does not have that purpose as far as in their thinking. So the Christian can answer that from a Christian worldview because other worldviews don't contain the right purpose for humanity. What is right and what is wrong? That's an ethical question. We're talking about morals. And how do we know what's right and wrong? It's one thing that you say this is right or you say this is wrong, but what's that based on? Is that subjective or is that based on an objective truth? And where does that come from? If all societies believe murder is wrong, how did that come in to, to happen? How did that come to happen that all societies know that murder is wrong? And even the ones who kill their babies still know that it's wrong in their heart. So how did we come to know this? That's a moral question. And ethical philosophers, what's called moral philosophy, has dealt with this for centuries, for millennia. And there's still today philosophers sit around and talk about well, what's right and what's wrong and how do we decide that? We just skip right to the answer. It's in the Bible. It tells us, God tells us everything we need to know about how to live a godly life, what's right and what's wrong. And we can apply that even in situations that arise today, like bioethics and so on. Why do things happen in history? What's their purpose? Is history random? Do things just come about in in history or in your life at a random, chaotic order? Does it mean anything? This is things that historians have asked for a long time. Is history pointing to something? Is it leading to something? Or is it just man's attempt to do what he wants and control things. Is there, in other words, is there a purpose behind all of history? These are worldview questions that the better you know systematic theology, the more you can answer these rightly from the Word of God and deal with objections and deal with challenges in your thinking and in your life. Anybody have these kinds of questions before? College? Anywhere else? Yeah? Anybody living in the world today? You've had them whether you realize it or not. It can be very, it can slip in subtly, a movie, right? A lot of movies have bad theology, bad worldview, books, television shows, events that happen in our society, gay pride parades, things people say, things that our friends say. What's the whole point? You know, what's the point of my life? So what if people commit suicide? That's no big deal. It doesn't matter if, if we do euthanasia. Abortion's not that big a deal. These are kinds of things that seep into our culture. And so even if you haven't been challenged directly, you've heard some of these. So here's some four areas that I listed here. And I think these are also in the book. How does systematic theology relate to your worldview? Okay, your view of creation and mankind. That's a big one. Wherever you start, that will determine where you're going to end up later, right? And if you start off on the wrong foot in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you're going to be in trouble. When you get to what Jesus has to say about marriage or what Jesus has to say about sin. You know, everybody says, well, you know, whatever Jesus said, whatever's in the red letters, I don't want to get involved in that debate about evolution. Well, Jesus talks about creation. Jesus talks about one man, one woman, and that's marriage. Jesus has things to say. Obviously, it's his word. Genesis 1 through 3 is still the word of God. And so we need to have the right view of that so we can deal with problems in our life, but also uh, challenges that come at us. When you do evangelism, you're going to run into these questions. They might not say it in the philosophical way I just stated it. What is truth? It'll just sound like, well, that's your truth, but I got my truth. See, it'll sound more more like people talk on the street, not how theologians talk in the ivory tower, but this is a question that will come up sometimes. 
and your friends and your family and your own children as they grow. Your children like to ask questions. They get about 12 or 13. They start pushing back and arguing with you. And, and they're doing this sort of dialogue back and forth. And, you know, they'll say, well, Dad, I'm just hypothetically saying, you know, I don't actually believe that. And we have to answer what they are asking as best we can. Apologetics, similarly, this is where you get into more of these big questions where you can sit down with somebody and talk to them and, and they're, they're attacking the faith and you're having to put up a defense from Scripture and you're having to do as Paul did in Athens or Peter calls us to do in First Peter 3, to give a defense for the faith that is within us, the faith that we believe, the faith in Christ. This is apologetics. I did a class on apologetics last fall. So if you want to go back on the website and listen to that, I go through many different scenarios in the second half of that class that we might face with the atheists or the Buddhists and so on. And discipleship. A new believer is still kind of hanging on to that old world view and they don't understand why they don't really, they don't even know what they don't know. And you've got to teach them. You're discipling them. Whether that's a child of yours or someone in the church that you're discipling, you need to bring them along and start to see the right worldview. And you do that through scripture and you take different verses, of course, over time and they group together and form theological topics, which then inform their worldview. And I did a whole class on evolution, actually. So check out the, the lecture on the website. That's just, I, I might have done two classes on evolution and apologetics, but I would just say that God created Adam and Eve, right? So if he starts with man, how can man evolve? right? If Genesis 1 starts with man, where's evolution in that? And if some human-like people, you can just ask questions, right? If human-like people existed before Adam, then what about their sin? And where's their people today? And did Christ die for them? And there's just all kinds of theological questions you could use to challenge that person. But you certainly won't find that concept anywhere in scripture of God using the evolutionary process. Now there's ad adaptation, microevolution, things that will get us off topic, but God certainly gave his creation animals, humans to the ability to adapt and change over time based on the situation that we're in. But that's not macroevolution or the, the theory of evolution. So check out the, the class on that. We've also got some great books and the books are a whole section on apologetics that we're always expanding. So good, good, good question. How to apply what you are learning so systematic theology can inform the mind and you need to apply it in your life. You need to use this. This is not about puffed up knowledge. The men came yesterday for men's leadership and we had over 30 guys here studying. And one of the emphasis in the book that we read is that we can't just be puffed up by what we learn about God. We have to be humble and we have to use this, this knowledge in ways that honor God. And one of those is through worship. So you're learning about who God is. That should cause you to worship him with right knowledge, right thinking, and with, with more zeal, more passion. You know God better. You know what he did through the topic of soteriology, salvation. You understand how sinful you were before you were saved and how sinful you can still be sometimes as you struggle in the Christian life. The better you know those things, the more you can worship God in the right way with a true heart and in spirit. Jesus says, those who worship me, worship me what? In truth and in spirit. So truth is the knowledge. You better, you better worship God the right way. And how can you do that unless you know what the word says? People think today you can just worship God however you want. Just do whatever you want and call it worship, right? It's the heart that matters. As long as you love God, you can get up here, put on a clown suit, dance around and call that worship. Well, the Bible has something to say about worship. The Bible's clear about what God expects from worship. And that's the truth. And we need to know who we're worshiping. There's a lot in the Bible about who God is. And we need to know that. That's truth. And so on. So also in spirit. That means that truth should, should drive us to love the Lord all the more and worship him. Your heart affections. I've really already touched on this with your, with your spirit. That's a little less spirit. Your spirit. Your, your affections. Your will. The things that you want to do in life, your desires, should change as you know more about God, as you know more about yourself. Calvin said in the beginning of his big, huge book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, it's his theology book, the first sentence is that man should know about God and man should know about himself. 
And from those two things, every other branch of theology comes. If you know who you are as God's creation and as a sinner, and you know who God is, then you're getting off on the right foot. You're starting with the right foundation. And when we know those things, it should make us desire to follow God because he is our savior, because he is our creator. We have all these reasons. It's not just, thank you, Lord, for saving me, but it's, thank you, Lord, for giving me breath today. Thank you, Lord, as I pray that, that, you're, that you're giving me my family, that you're giving me my children, this house, that you provide, that your, your providence has led us to this point, that all of you in this room, God providentially has put you here this day for a reason. Thank you, Lord, for creating. Thank you. I mean, the more you understand about God, the more your prayer life has changed. Your desire, your affections, your concern for the lost, your, your heart is changed because you're growing in your knowledge. And we're called to have a full knowledge of Christ, which is not technically attainable, but we do fill up what God has given us throughout this life. Number three, teaching and counseling others. If you're ever going to teach someone else, you better have the right theology. You want to teach your children the wrong theology and have them grow up in life believing the wrong thing? You know, that there's no hell? People believe today that there's no hell. My God would never send anybody to hell. Not my God. And your children grow up believing in your God, parents. Sometimes grandparents can have an influence as well like this. And how many, if you go back and listen to my cults part of the, the early part of the summer, and even some of the ones Frank did on Mormonism, how many cult leaders grew up believing the wrong thing about God, and they thought they were rejecting you know, certain things like God's wrath, because that was emphasized too much in the church they grew up in and, and not the other attributes of God. And then what they do? They swung 180 degrees the wrong direction, came up with their own cult religion and said, no, no, it's Christian science that saves you. No, no, it's, it's you can be your own God in Mormonism. No, it's the, the Jehovah's Witness and the, the, the Tract Society that will teach you how to be saved. You need to teach rightly to your children, parents. And you need to make sure you're in the right kind of church. How do you know that? Well, you have to know the Bible and you have to know theology somewhat so you can pick the right church. And also counseling and teaching others as you help others, as you hear their problems. Do you want to give them bad advice? Do you want to be on the hook for giving them bad advice because your theology wasn't quite what it should be? And none of us are going to know, again, all that we can know in this life, but you ought to be growing. You should be making sure that what you believe is what Scripture says. That your theology matches the Bible. So when someone says, my marriage is falling apart, you don't just come up with your own view of marriage or your own view of how to, how to help somebody who's sinning. You know, that, that is a problem in this world, isn't it? Oh, I'm having these struggles. You go to see a counselor out there in the world and they say, oh, your problem is you grew up believing all these false things about what your pastor said and what, what your parents taught you. You just need to go and do that thing all the more. And then your conscience won't bother you. That's true because you've seared your conscience. That's psychology. Or you're meeting with a friend and they say, you know, I've, I've got this addiction and I can't break it. And you say, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, the best thing you should do is bind Satan. That'll take care of it. There's people that teach that. There's nothing in the Bible about that except Christ binding Satan. So it'd be good to know a theology of, of Satan, a theology of Christ's power over Satan. That's pretty important. What about Job's friends? They show up and they give him some really bad counsel, don't they? He said, you guys are bad counselors. You awful counselors. Why? Because they were blaming Job. It's all your fault. God would never do this to somebody unless they were a really bad sinner. They had no area in their theology, no space in their theology for the fact that God will bring about certain things in our lives so that we grow, so that we respond rightly, not always due to our sin. Sometimes it is due to our sin. So that's helpful too, because somebody sins, they're having a, a really, a lot of trouble in their life. God is bringing discipline. And you say to them, well, God would never do that. Don't worry about it. That's, it's not because of your sin. I've heard that before. God would never discipline one of his children for their sin be helpful if you knew the Bible, if you knew Hebrews 12, if you knew some other passages of Scripture. Practical godliness. Really, all that we just spoke of here is practical godliness. But this is focusing more on your personal walk, not so much on worship or, or that's part of your personal walk and, and teaching and counseling others. But how are you living in general as a Christian? 
And the, the theology of sanctification really has an effect on how you're living out your Christian life. If you believe that you can be perfect in this life without sin, do you think that's going to affect your Christian life somewhat? What are you going to feel like if, if you think perfection's attainable, but I can't get there? Anybody been in that kind of environment? What's your, what's your general outlook going to be on the Christian life? Stress, anxiety, I can never measure up, I'm never good enough. This God is, is so hard, I can never please him. There's legalistic churches, people out there. And there's the Wesleyan belief is that, at least for a time, you can live a perfect, sinless life. Or somebody says you can lose your salvation. That'll affect your Christian walk. Again, maybe that'll cause you to be really stressed and think, I got to be perfect so I don't lose it. Or maybe one day you wake up and think you lost it, and the next day you got it back, and the next day you lost it, and you're just a yo-yo, up and down, up and down. That's the theology just of sanctification. Sin. It's important to know something about sin, homardiology. It's important to know something about man, something about Christ, who's always there for us in our walk, who's, who's ready to hear our confession, who's interceding for us. All of this great theology of salvation in Christ, that helps our walk with him. Love for the lost. If you understand the doctrine of man, anthropology, and you understand the doctrine of sin, homardiology, that should cause you to have a love for the lost. A love in the sense of you want to see them saved. You feel for them. You remember, even though it might have been decades, and we often forget, right, as Christians, how sinful we once were and how we lived. And learning about what Scripture says about that and examples in the Bible of how sinful some of these people were reminds us of who we were and how God saved us. That gives us a heart for the lost and how the world is, is going down and how people are headed to hell and how there's eternal wrath and condemnation. The more you study hell, the more uncomfortable you should get as you think about what's actually happening there. But the more you should love the lost as a result of that. Hell is a place of eternal torment and none of us should enjoy thinking about people being tormented. But it helps us to understand the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, and the love we should have for the lost. Apologetics and evangelism, already, already covered that briefly. But this is really, how do we defend the faith and how do we take the faith out? How do we take the gospel out? That's how you apply what you're learning. Don't just store it up and bank it up and think, you know, someday God's going to open the door, you know. Maybe in five decades, he'll open the door for me to use this knowledge. There's opportunities right now, just in, in all these categories. Right now, there's opportunities in this church for you to use what you're learning. In fact, half of Frank's counseling training course is a training in systematic theology and the things you need to know theologically to counsel people. There's opportunities to do evangelism, to teach. There's opportunities to counsel. Obviously, opportunities to worship and live out and serve others. So how does systematic theology relate to your personal life? There's three main ones listed in the book. These come from an article by B.B. Warfield. I think it's something to theological students, a lecture to theological students. But it applies to all Christians. They don't have, B.B. Warfield didn't give nice headings like we put up on the screen during the sermon. So you'd have to read through the article. But they've pulled these three out. Let's look at the verses here. The first way this relates to your personal life is through intimacy, intimacy with God and maturity. These verses are so key. Look in your Bibles at Hebrews 5.12. Scott Van Summeren, can you read Hebrews 5.12 and 13? And Phil, can you read 1 Corinthians 3.1 through 3? Listen to how these verses talk about, and we've looked at these a few weeks ago, but let's, let's look at them in some more detail this morning. Talk about your knowledge and what you should know as a Christian. Right, Hebrews 5, 12 through 13. You're, you know what he's saying there? If you need milk, if you need to be retaught the basics of the faith every year of your Christian walk, you're a baby. You're a baby. And isn't that what it said? What is an infant? An infant. You've come to need milk. That's, that's baby milk. That's breast milk. You're, you're not ready for the real food. And this isn't a puffed up knowledge where Oh, you know, you're, you're not a good enough Christian. You need to get better so you can learn the, the meaty stuff. No, this is, he's saying, look, by now, you should be teaching other people. 
these basics. You should be able to teach other people the fundamentals of the faith. And we have to keep recovering this basic doctrine of repentance and faith. He says, you've got to move beyond this. You're not accustomed to the things that you should be. You're an infant. Stop being babies is what he's saying. That's how, that's how I'd preach it. Right? Stop being a baby. Grow up. There's no excuse for not growing in the Christian life. There is no excuse. You don't do that with your work if you're in a career. You don't say, well, you know, I just want to stay the same my whole 20, 30 years of my career. I never want to gain an income. I never want to gain in, in recognition. I never want to grow in what I know and how I can serve my, my company or my own business. No, you're always doing that. You're always growing. You don't do that in your marriage, hopefully. Right? I just, I just want to know my spouse the same as I knew them the day we were married. The Bible calls us to know our spouse and understand men, our wives. And wives, submit and love your husband. Husbands, love and lead your wife. And that's an ongoing learning process and putting it into practice. Don't be babies. Grow. Learn. Always be learning throughout your whole life. All right, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. He says, look, you Christians, you church in Corinth, stop being babies. You're still living in many ways like you were as an unbeliever, fleshly, carnal. You're still living like who you were before you came to Christ. Obviously, there's going to be some change in their life, or he couldn't say that they were Christian, but the church was a mess. The church is a mess in Corinth. And he says, it's time to grow up. But these problems that you guys have, you shouldn't be having. And he's going to help them with the problems in the letter. But he's saying here, I've given you milk to drink. I have to feed you baby food because you're not ready to eat meat. And meat is not, you know, super lapsarian, infralapsarian. Some of you know what that is. But things that aren't in the Bible. It's not a, a such high philosophical way of thinking about things that it's found nowhere in Scripture. No, he said, I just wanted to teach you things to help you grow in the Lord. About who God is, about who Christ is, about who man is all these different theological topics. And he says, you're still needing milk. You're still too much in the world that you came out of. You're still acting and living too much and believing too much like the world believes. And you need to grow up. You're you're infants. You need baby milk, breast milk. You're still suckling and you're not ready to walk on your own two feet. And you think that's offensive today. That would have been really offensive then too, right? To call somebody a baby. It's meant to be an exhortation. Even worse then, because then the, the way they view children is not like today. It's even lower. And they would say, you know, children are better, better not seen and not heard, right? Let's not see them, let's not hear them until they get to a certain age. Now, that's not, not necessarily the biblical view. That's just how the world was at the time. And he's saying, you're babies. That's a, a bit above calling them dogs, like Jesus called the Pharisees. But he's still saying, look, you're really immature. And you need to grow up, mature in the faith. This is the biggest problem with American Christianity and Christianity in the world. I'm saved, check a box, give your money, and I'm good. Grow, grow up, grow up in the faith. Don't be tossed around by every wind of doctrine. There's no better way to saturate one's mind with Scripture than by sitting under expository preaching. So this is quoting right from that section in the book here. And studying systematic theology. Both will enhance one's spiritual maturity. This is why we're doing this class. You come on a Sunday morning. You're getting theology in the class this morning. You're getting expository preaching in the sermon this morning. We did both really yesterday. Uh, Frank and I preached to the men on various topics in the Christian life. And we studied theology through the reading and book discussion. On Wednesday night, we're doing an expository teaching lesson. We're working verse by verse to the Bible. But when these things came up, come up in the Bible studies or the sermon, these, these theological topics, they're being brought out. They're being opened up. They're being examined. And I think I mentioned to you guys last week or the previous week where there's a certain type of preaching that sounds expository and it's just explaining what the words mean and the grammar. And it's just, it seems like it's going verse by verse. And it is. But there's no stopping and putting things together. There's no dealing with theology. It would be as if I went all the way through Romans 9, told you what the words mean, and kind of gave a brief definition of election, but never put it all together. Or Romans 8, and reminded you the whole topic of Romans 8 is, let's see how y'all do. Romans 8 is about 
Assurance. Somebody was, somebody was here for those sermons. Assurance. It's about assurance. Now, assurance is not in every word. It's not in every paragraph of the chapter 8. So if I hadn't said that, and I just was telling you what the words mean, and okay, in the next verse, Christ means this, and I'd, I've got to wrap it together. A sermon is not just reading the Bible. It's not just getting out a commentary and throwing it at you. It's wrapping it up together, giving you some points, ex- exhorting you to believe it, exhorting you to apply it in your life. And so that helps you understand theology and how to live it out. Holiness. We're back to how to live this out. But particularly here, what is holiness? That's such a huge topic in the Bible that learning theology helps us with that. Look at Isaiah 6.3, and one called out to another. These are the seraphim, the order of angels that are flying around God in this vision that Isaiah has. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the statement about God's holiness, really, in the Bible. I mean, you can go back to Leviticus, and he says some things there as well. But this was so good that R.C. Sproul wrote a whole book on it, The Holiness of God, from this one verse. If you haven't read it, you should read it. It's a great book. But what if we don't understand holiness? Is this going to make much sense to us? I mean, we understand there's some kind of worship going on. But what is holiness? And why is it said three times? And is it said three times about anyone else in the Bible? Is it said twice about anybody else in the Bible? Why is it being repeated? Who is Yahweh? Why is that name being used there? What is the host? Those are angels. What, why are there angels? Why is he called Yahweh of hosts, the army of angels? What's the whole earth? Who created the whole earth? What is glory? You see all the theological questions that come up here? And if we understand what the whole Bible says on these topics, then that'll help us understand this better and apply this better in our walk. We'll understand through this verse God's holiness, and we can walk according to his call to us to be holy. 1 Peter 1.16, repeating Leviticus 27, You shall be holy, for I am holy. We're called to be holy. Old covenant, new covenant. Both of those groups are called to be holy. We're in the new covenant now, so we're called to be holy. Where would you go to learn about God's holiness? Well, the Old Testament, yeah. Are you just going to start in Genesis 1 and read through, you know, the end of Malachi? Well, go for it. You should be doing that every year. But there's a lot of things that come up in between. So it's good to take all the verses on holiness, assemble them together, and say, okay, what is God's holiness? What is he calling us to do? Because we're to be like him. But in one sense, we can't really be just like God, can we? Because he's completely separate. He's set apart, and we're always part of of God's creation. He's separate from the creation. So we can say that about God's holiness, right? There's, There's one aspect that we can't do, but as far as his perfection when it comes to no sin, we should be striving towards that. And so there are other verses that speak of that as well. We need to learn about God's holiness so we can be holy. Hebrews, that's supposed to be 1210, not 120. There's not 120 chapters in Hebrews. Paul didn't get that far when he wrote Hebrews. For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he, God, we're back to this discipline issue that I said, read Hebrews 12 earlier. He disciplines us for our benefit so that we may share his holiness. What does that mean? We need to have a theological concept of holiness so we understand what that means. Now we can look up the words and that'll help us. And our theology can be built by this verse. But it would be better if we understood what the whole Bible says on this. Because we might make a mistake and say, God takes a piece of himself and he gives it to us. And that's how we share. That's what the Greeks did. They said the gods, they, they, they give these little pieces of themselves. Is that aeons? Where's Chris? Is that the aeons? Where you, the, you, the, the stardust, basically? You get a little piece of the God in you and, and that will cause you to be more like God. Is that what it's talking about? That we can be little gods like the prosperity people teach? They might point to this verse and say, well, there it is, sharing his holiness. You get to share in a piece of God. Well, it's good to know what the whole Bible says on holiness and that attribute of God to realize that's not what it's talking about. It's just another way of saying, be holy like I am holy. Be holy like God is holy. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. 
it would be good to know here that while we can't be perfect, we're called to strive for that perfect. Be perfect like my Father in heaven is perfect. That's our goal. So we don't look around and say, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm more perfect than my spouse. I'm holier than the guy next to me in church. He's a real sinner, not me. It'd be good to have the right goal. It'd be good to know what this means and that we can't actually attain perfection because if we thought we could, we might teach this the wrong way to somebody or believe it ourselves as we're reading it the wrong way. Here's John Brown. This is quoted in Biblical Doctrine. Also, it comes from his expository discourses on 1 Peter. He was a Scottish theologian. He taught seminary in Scotland in the 1800s. Holiness does not consist in mystic speculations, enthusiastic fervors, or uncommanded austerities. It consists in thinking as God thinks. That's theology. We're to think like God thinks. And willing as God wills. That's living out what we've learned. God's mind and will are to be known from his word. And so far as I really understand and believe God's word, God's mind becomes my mind. God's will becomes my will. And according to the measure of my faith, I become holy. So I need to think God's thoughts after him. I need to have the mind of Christ, Paul talks about in some of his epistles. The mind of Christ. There's even a a hymn. Is it called the mind of Christ? May the mind of Christ dwell in me. We sing it in seminary. We need to sing it here. All right, lastly, sanctification. So we've already touched on this with holiness, but more specifically, how we live out the godly life that we're called to live. Theology helps us with that. Not just telling others about the right views of sanctification and lecturing them about how we're more biblical than they are, but about how we actually live it out ourselves. And let's just, as an example, let's take 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. And, and this has nothing necessarily in it about your sanctification. But let's look at this passage and see how it might help us in our sanctification. So the word sanctification is not there, is it? How does this help us with our sanctification? Hold fast. That's an ongoing holding fast, not just for one day or one minute. Yeah, there's, there's a theology here of receiving the word. Where did Paul receive the word? Why should we receive the word? Why did the Corinthians receive that word? This is talking about revelation. That's bibliology. We'll, we'll be looking at that next week. And by the way, how does that play into our sanctification? Well, if God has revealed how we should live, then we better obey it. If he has revealed what we should believe, we better believe it. That's bibliology. Inspiration of scripture. And, and so how this verse might apply is, what if you are called to evangelize? Is there anything in the Bible that says we should do the Great Commission, tell others, and make disciples? We learn what it is, and here's Paul teaching us, and then we go and apply it. We've got to put into practice what we've learned in the classroom. Good. What else? Let's look at some of the words. Are there theological words in this sentence? There, there's a first importance level of doctrine, isn't there? The gospel being of first importance. He never talks about anything of second importance, does he? That's just Paul. Sometimes he does that. But what is salvation? Because the word saved is in, isn't that in verse 2? What is salvation? Well, I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to hit my, my B-dag Greek lexicon and whatever it says, that's what salvation is. Well, you, you can look up the word and start there, but there's a lot of verses about salvation, other passages that open up what salvation is. So that's doing theology. And if we understand what salvation is, then we can live a more godly life as a result of that. The gospel is the means, by that's going to help us if we hear some bad theology, right? Well, maybe there's other paths of salvation. And, and you kind of open your mind to that. That would not be good for your sanctification. You think, well, it's okay if I believe some bad things about the gospel and about how God saves people. That doesn't affect me personally. No, it does, because the next thing you know, you're in a church that believes that. That all, the, all faiths are, are true. And they're having services with Muslims at Easter Sunday. Yeah, and guess what Paul's going to talk about in the rest of 1 Corinthians 15? Our resurrection, which points back to the resurrection of Christ. And the fact that he was resurrected ensures us that we can be resurrected, that we will be resurrected, which is the theology of future things. Personally, personal eschatology, what's going to happen to the believer when he dies? What happened to Christ after he died? He was raised again. That's a theological concept that would help us Live our Christian life. Because in Romans 6 and 7 and especially in 8, 
Paul uses that idea of glorification, the resurrection, as an encouragement to live a godly life. You can be assured because he's already said he will glorify you. He already has done it. It's so certain. And that should encourage us to live a godly life. Because we're going to be resurrected and spending eternity with Christ. And if we don't like the church now, and if we don't like living a godly life now, what's eternity going to be like? Right? I don't like those Christians. That's why I don't go to church. You can have a hard time in heaven, right? It's not just go sit in the forest by yourself for eternity. Okay, what else do we have? The death of Christ. According to the scriptures. That's, that, according to the scriptures, it's mentioned twice. That's bibliology. That's the doctrine of scripture that touches on that subject. What does it mean according to the scriptures? And why is that important? Because if God has said it, it will happen. And he's bringing about all those promises that he gave in the Old Testament. So now we're getting into theology again. And we can just go on and on through the Bible like that. So in our sanctification, it would be helpful to know theological topics and understand something about them as we read our Bibles. So we don't go off track number one and think the wrong theology. And think, well, you know, I think this means blank. And I don't go to any other passages and I don't talk to anybody in my church about that thought. And then you decide to write a book on your thoughts. And you say, I've got an idea for a new book. Derek says it's going to be called Derek's Calling. How to Succeed in Life According to 1 Corinthians 15. That's going to affect his sanctification and maybe some of ours, right? It's going to test Frank and I's patience. I mean, it's, it's going to really work on our sanctification. And that informs our evangelism. That informs our sanctification. There's so much. As we understand scripture better and put it together rightly, we can then live a more godly life. So I think I've made that point above and beyond. Let's hear it now from B.B. Warfield. This is the quote I was been thinking of. I said it yesterday in the men's leadership, and I never can remember if it's Whitfield or Warfield. It's Warfield. Sometimes we hear it said that 10 minutes on your knees will give you a truer, deeper, more operative knowledge of God than 10 hours over your books. What is the appropriate response than 10 hours over your books or on your knees? Why should you turn from God when you turn to your books or feel that you must turn from your books in order to turn from God? So what he's getting at here is sometimes seminarians are taught that, you know, don't just get into your books. You need to, you need to go pray. And then if you don't have time for studying God, no big deal. And he says, why can't you do both? Why can't you pray over your reading of theology? Why can't you, if, if this book is just a bunch of Bible verses with explanations in between, why can't we prayerfully be reading this book? Why does it have to be one or the other? It should be both. It should be both. In other words, we ought to be growing in our prayer life even as we study theology. Frank mentioned yesterday to the guys about praying through the attributes of God. And that's always been one of Paul Washer's big things, right? He talks about Pray through the attributes of God. One of my professors said he got up every morning for a year. He went for a 30-minute walk. He chose one attribute, and he prayed through that attribute the whole time, <clears throat> just thanking God and how that attribute works out in our lives and in the world and so on. That affects our sanctification. So it's not one or the other. Sometimes you'll hear that. Don't talk about theology and debate these things, right? How many people have you witnessed to today? Then you can tell me about your theology. I've heard that usually from the Southern Baptist brethren, but they'll say, you know, don't debate election. Tell me how many people you witnessed to today. And I'll say, why can't we do both? Can we not study the Bible and witness to people on the same day? <laughs> Did Jesus teach and evangelize and then teach his disciples and evangelize and teach his disciples? Okay, any questions? Other than why did they have cool beards like that back then? It's the Civil War era. You know, they had those cool squared off beards. B.B. Warfield. Challenging to read, though. Okay, we got two minutes. I'm going to start quizzing you guys. What is theology? Who's got the best answer? Study of? Study of God. Okay. How do we do theology? Which also tells us what it is more in depth. How do we do it? Do we pull out Aristotle? Do we get all the books written by pastors together? Where do we start? Okay, go back to the sources, back to the beginning. Ad fontes. 
So what's the beginning for theology? Scripture. So what is theology, the study of God? How do we go about it from Scripture? What do we do with Scripture? Organize it. It's an orderly study of what the Bible says about. Yeah, you just ask a question and then answer it by what the whole Bible says about it. It's the whole Bible, right? Not just one verse, but the whole Bible. Because we might take one verse out of context or not understand it rightly. But when we're doing theology, we take what the whole Bible says. So whatever question you have in life, then bring it to the Bible. If the Bible speaks on that subject, then we care. And we're doing theology. Okay, so here's another quiz question for you then. Where can I find calculus in the Bible? God's order, logic, natural world. That's about as close as we can get, but it's not a calculus book, right? So it doesn't answer that question. Derivatives, linear algebra, all that fun stuff. It's not going to answer that question because that's not why God gave the book. But he did create mathematical concepts that are out there in the world and creation, right? We can ask the Bible that question. It just may not have the answer because that's not the purpose to which God gave it. It doesn't mean that God didn't create those things. It just means that's not the purpose. The purpose of the Bible is to save and to sanctify. To save and to sanctify. So we'll get into that when we look at bibliology next week. So bring your questions to the Bible. Just realize it's not always going to answer the questions that atheists will throw at you and say, well, the Bible is not a biology textbook, therefore evolution must exist. Well, it's not a biology textbook, but it has something to say about creation. And so whatever it says is true. As believers, we have to obey that and believe that. All right, next week is bibliology. If you're reading along, read that section, mark up your books, study it. We're going to start with general revelation versus special revelation. And we've already seen that come up in our Romans study, but it's been a few years since we hit Romans 1 and 2. And we're going to look at that next week. And then we'll, if we have time, we'll start on inspiration. Inspiration. God has revealed his word to his people. Where does that come from? Is that Paul's ideas that he's putting down? Or is it God's? And if it's God's, how does that work that through Paul, God tells us what he wants us to know and do? All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for our study. Help us to be better theologians. Sometimes we, we let too much man-centered thinking slip into our theology. We let the world uh, affect what we believe. We need to know your word better. And so we can tell others the truth. We can live a more godly life. We can worship you rightly. Do all the things that you've called us to do. Be all that you've called us to be and believe what you've told us to believe. Help us with that as we walk through this world with all the challenges that come against us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.